0: As the choir is making their way down, I would like for you to turn to Acts chapter 3. Our scripture reading will be Acts chapter 3, verse 11, down through verse 26. And the context is Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts. And the title is Faith in His Name. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, Let's give our attention to the Word. The Bible says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother's. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. And he says to the Jewish people, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. All the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What a sermon. Now, in sermon preparation, in seminary, we learned that you always want to, as a preacher, to have a hook that gets the attention of the listener. We call it an attention getter. So really, when you preach a sermon, you've got attention, need, satisfaction, or body, and conclusion. So, believe it or not, when I start a sermon, I'm going for need and conclusion. Some of you think, you're never going to get there, but that's the goal of a sermon, right? To get the conclusion. But you need a sermon, you need an enticement, or a, uh, some kind of attention getter to wrap the people's mind around the thematic structure of a text, of Scripture. Well, think about... The attention getter that Peter had when he preached his sermon. The attention getter is clinging to his side. It's a man that had uh, sat at the gate, beautiful perhaps, for twenty something years. He was forty years of age, and he's never. He had a congenital problem. He had never been able to walk. What an attention getter! What an assert, what a sermon launch for them to be able to see. The restoring power and transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ right before their eyes. And so this is what Peter's going to do. He's going to take an opportunity to preach the word with the attention getter standing right beside him, clinging to him. Now think about this man. What an unusual picture it was that day in the temple. This guy wasn't clinging to the Pharisees. Remember, this is a solemn place, right? Coming up to the temple and everybody's real solemn. But here's this hallelujah shouting fest going on because a man that was lame is now walking. So the people, the text says, are absolutely amazed. They're astounded. The word in the Greek means there's an ecstasy going on. They're they're amazed at what's going on. And so Peter, in light of the miracle, and people are looking at him, he asked two questions. The first one is, Why are you so amazed? What do you mean, why are we amazed? I mean, we put money in the tin can. We know this man has been here for this many years, and it can only happen if God did this because he was lame for 40 years and now he's walking. That's why we're amazed. And then Peter says, Why are you staring at us? And this is the same word that's used in chapter 1, verse 10 when the men are standing gazing up into heaven and the angels say to them, why are you watching intently and looking up into the heavens? So he informs them that at this point that it is not through their power or their piety that this man has been made whole. Now think about this for a moment. They're thinking that it was Peter and John that actually performed the miracle. And in those days, people who performed something like that were looked upon and viewed as people who had extraordinary powers. As a matter of fact, it's kind of like you look at me sometimes and think, well, the preacher has one up on us and he gets an ear from God more than we do. That's bogus, by the way. You've got just as much access as I do if you're in Christ Jesus, right? But but, but they looked on people like Peter and John and thought, if you can do this extraordinary thing, then there must be an extraordinary amount of piety in you. And thus Peter says, not our power and not our piety. As a matter of fact, he diverts the attention away from us, from them, and he says, yeah, we're just average Joes, you don't understand. God is demonstrating His power, and although the miracle makes you gravitate toward us, you're gravitating to the wrong source. The real source is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he points them away from himself, away from John, and ultimately even away from the healed man, and he wants them to think about Jesus Christ. So that's the sermon. He's made whole, not by Peter and John. He's made whole by the restoring power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learned last week that it's one thing to say, arise, take up your bed and walk, but it's a whole lot different ball game to say, your sins be forgiven you. And so the real restoring power of the Lord Jesus Christ is on display. Remember the theme of of the book of Acts is the conquest of the kingdom. We're seeing the triumph of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and His power and His power alone to restore fallen man and also to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we're seeing that. And Peter's emphasis, just like the first sermon, he's going to begin to preach on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are three implications this morning. You're going to have to listen fast. Three implications that I want you to take away from this. First, you need to realize God's perspective on His servant Jesus. Now, in this church, while I've been preaching on Acts, we've been playing Old Testament, name that tune. Right? And you've learned that it's strategic. Uh, As a matter of fact, we learned that you preach Christ through the Old Testament. We've learned that He's all over the pages of the Old Testament. So we're going to do a little bit of that in the first point. As we realize God's perspective on His servant, the Lord Jesus, we're going to quickly understand that this oozes Jewish understanding of the Hebrew Bible, meaning the Old Testament. So Peter's ultimate message is that what you're seeing today is not anything new. It's not a new deity, right? Check it out. It says here that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament, which oozes Jewish flavor. They understood exactly what he meant by this. In other words, he's talking about Yahweh God. God only has one name, and it's Yahweh. He's got many titles that you can study in the Word. But Yahweh is His name. He's the God who is and who is present and who will always be. So in the Jewish mind, when He said the God of Israel that revealed Himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, He's saying to them, this is not a revelation of some new deity. Now it may be new revelation of that deity, but it's the same God. It's the same God in the New Testament. So He's saying to them, you're going up to the temple to worship. The God of the Old Testament. And I'm telling you that Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. Right? That's what they're doing. They're going up to worship. And he says, God has glorified, note this, His servant Jesus. They would have known what this terminology is. Y'all have a Bible? You have one? Hold them up. Alright, Isaiah chapter 51. No, excuse me, 52. And it's broken up here, so you better turn. Right? We have no monitor. We have no PowerPoint. So... Chapter 52 of Isaiah. Would you please turn there in order for you to see Old Testament name that tune. Okay? Because when he says, your servant, or God has glorified His servant Jesus, it comes directly from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 52. They would have known, this is called the servant song. And notice what it says in 52.13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. How did He exalt His servant? Through His life, death, burial, and resurrection, and glorious ascension, and enthronement. This is God's attitude toward His servant. God the Father's attitude toward His servant, the Son of God, who's always existed in harmony with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, God the Father's attitude about His servant is highly exalted. That's His attitude. What did you do with Him? God has highly exalted His servant. What did you do with Him? And then Acts verse 13, uh, excuse me, 14. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. God exalted His servant and yet you murdered His servant. You betrayed him. You disowned him. Pilate even judged him as innocent and sought to release him. Think about this. Even the boneheaded, pagan, rotten to the core, Pontius Pilate, had a better understanding of God's servant than the Jewish people themselves, who anticipated what the Word of God taught in the Old Testament. Now think about this. Isaiah 53.3. Name that tune again. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Y'all know that Old Testament name, that tune, right? That's the one he's speaking of here. Now do you think these religious leaders and common folk that were steeped in the Old Testament could make the connection? You think they made a connection of the servant song in Isaiah 52, 13 and how that begins and the messianic titles that are given. Do you know, he, call, know he calls them the holy and righteous one? That, my friends, as well, comes directly from Psalm 16, and I won't make you turn there, but listen to Isaiah 53:11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So we are, again, Old Testament named that tune. He's the Holy One in character and never sinned once, right? He's also the righteous one. But you begged for a murderer, Barabbas, which his name means the son of some father, you you beg for Barabbas to be graced to you instead of God's highly exalted servant. Talk about going to the juggler vein when you're preaching, right? Just right there like a pit bull, right? He's not letting them off the hook. I mean, you really ever, never have started preaching until you can say you, right? Well, he's saying to them, you murdered him. God's highly exalted servant, you murdered They asked that a murderer's life should be spared, listen to this, play on words, and killed above the very author of life. The author gave Barabbas his life. Y'all listening? Is anybody getting this? Y'all awake out there? I'm not preaching to just myself, am I? Right? Yes, the author of life you killed. But that's not the end of the story. As apostolic preaching always says, you killed him. But God raised him up, and we are witnesses. Hallelujah. And that's what he says here. You killed him. God raised him up. We are witnesses. So straight out of the gate, here is Peter driving home that principle that God has glorified his servant Jesus. You remember him. You begged that a murderer would go free in his place. He's reiterating that in their mind. The people's perspective was to despise and betray and reject and forsake. Yet in verse 16, Peter's going to make this bridge. Listen to this. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Now get get this. Track with me. Here's God's perspective on his servant. You murdered him. I highly exalted him. You murdered him. I raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of it. And now it's in faith in his name only that you can be made whole. Track with me. That's what he's saying. It's only in his name that you can be made whole. And you know, this man standing right before me as a great preaching illustration that's, that was lame, that's now walking, is evidence that you can't be made whole other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. Note this it says, in his name. What does it mean to say faith in his name? Well, biblically, a name means so much more and is so much bigger than just giving someone a title. It has to do with character and essence. So, we're learning something about the character of Jesus when we say his name is Yes, you are Jesus. We're learning something about the attributes of God when we say that Jesus is God. We're, wondering, we're talking about who he is and what he is like. So, faith in that name who's the one? The holy and the righteous one, the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ that has been exalted. So, Peter has already told them. About this name. He's the Holy One. He's the righteous one. And if you recall the miracle, as he's preaching, he says to them, if you recall this miracle, the man that was lame from birth at first was only looking for the money. Y'all remember this? Silver and gold have I none. Does this man have any faith in the beginning? Not one iota. All he's looking for, folks, is some money. Well, it says by his, whose faith made him whole? Well, was it Peter and John's faith? Was it the man's faith that made him whole? Well, who exercised the faith? It is when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us, opens our eyes, and regenerates us so that the command to believe is is with the commandment to believe, already we have in us the enablement to accept the gift of God, which is faith. Now folks, that's the only way it works. For by grace are you saved, say it, and that not, it is a, look, he had no faith in the beginning. It is the enabling power, regenerating, quickening of the Holy Spirit of God that made him alive in his spirit in order for him to respond affirmatively to the command. His faith was a gift from God. Praise God. Notice the text. If that's not enough, here's what it says. And the faith that is through Jesus. doesn't even say in Him. It says that this faith is through Jesus. So that's God's perspective on His sermon, uh, servant. Folks, the main point of the miracle is that at the name of Jesus, and at the, as the gospel penetrates by grace through faith as a gift from God to us, He restores us. That's the only way restoration can come. It's the only way it can come spiritually and physically. It's by the restoring power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. God's perspective on His servant. Here's the second thing. We need to respond to the compassionate invitation to come to Jesus for salvation. In 17-21, he's going to make a staggering turn. And he's going to be so compassionate when he does it. I mean, folks, here are men standing before him that crucified the Son of God. You can't really number a sin above that, can you? They wanted Barabbas. Give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. He's knocked the wind... Completely out of His people listening. Right? You crucified Him. God has highly exalted Him. And then He turns around with this compassionate invitation that in my heart, the deepest part of my emotions and heart and life, that's what I want you to do today. Respond to this compassionate invitation. And then He says to them, you did it in ignorance. Now, it doesn't remove their culpability, right? But He says to them, you did it in ignorance. Blindly, you did it in ignorance, but you still did it, right? You crucified the Son of God. And in this sermon, his blunt indictment against the people turns into a compassionate invitation. He doesn't dismiss their culpability, but he does say to them, you did it blindly, you did it out of ignorance, and what a tone change. When, in Acts 13 Paul is going to do the same thing when he's preaching. Over in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, he's going to do a similar thing. And he doesn't ridicule them. You remember the first sermon? He's kind of a little bit straight to the face. And, but you know why? Because they're, they're responding with ridicule. In the first sermon, they're kind of gnashing their teeth and they're thinking, oh, these are drunk people. So Peter goes more for the juggler there. But here, he's, he's a little more compassionate in his presentation. I think we can all take some, something from that, right? When you're sharing Jesus with others. And you get somebody that's belligerent. And they're like, God doesn't even exist. And you know, on that kind of time, you need to mm, maybe go for the juggler, right? But there are other times when the person is very sensitive to, to what's being said. And you, your approach in evangelism is a little bit different. So some... Because of the hardness of their heart and resistance, we may need to go for the throat. But with others, we need to take a little bit different approach. And that's exactly what God brings about to us in this text. So by the sovereign God of the universe, God takes the evil plans of evil men who crucified the Son of God. And through that, in His determined plan, He has given us our righteous sufferer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was delivered up according to the definitive plan of God. Y'all remember that? So even the evil plans of man could not thwart God's work. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. And it certainly doesn't excuse the people's sin, but he takes their sinful character and says, even your sin and evil ways were a part of God's plan. Didn't happen by accident. Now at this point, Here's how you remedy your ignorance. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Isn't that a beautiful text? Just repent. He's saying one thing with two words. It would be the same thing as saying repent and believe. And Peter tells him up front, your sin is awful in the sight of God. As a matter of fact, they're in worse shape than they think they are. And if you're lost today, so are you. Some of you think, well, my sins separate me from God. I've done way too much to be forgiven and to be healed from my sinfulness. I want to tell you right now, before God, you you are worse than you think you are. As a matter of fact, the Bible says His eyes are so holy that He cannot even look upon sin. So get that out of your mind right quick. If you're listening to the sermon, you can be saved. If God's given you the opportunity to hear the Word and to hear this sermon today... Then you can be saved. So they have denied and disowned and killed the very prince of life. But what compassion. But turn from your sin. Turn from your sins and trust Jesus for salvation. And the Bible says He will wipe away your sins. Did you know that here they are standing there with their very hands dripping with the blood of Christ. And He says to them, If you repent and turn to Me, I'll wipe your sins away. You know where that comes from. It's the only time this terminology is used anywhere in the Bible. And it refers to the process of handling a piece of parchment. And the process was like this. In those days, they had no acid in the ink. And the ink was just lying on the surface of the parchment. And to get rid of it, all all you had to do was wipe off the ink and you would have a clean slate. Hallelujah! Right? God can just wipe the parchment clean, wipe your life clean completely, and make you righteous. Isn't that awesome? That's what He does. He wipes it away. And Peter is telling them, "Black, the black spots of sin on your life can be made white like snow. Dark is the stain that you cannot hide. What could avail, you know the song, don't you? To wash it away, look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. All because of Jesus. Now think about this. Some of you here today are thinking, I can't be forgiven for what I've done. Listen to me. He's preaching to an audience that they have hands that are literally dripping with blood. And he says, here's the remedy. Turn from your sin and he will wipe your sins away from your life. Doesn't matter how black or how soiled, God can do it with the spoken word. He can wipe your sins away. It's free pardon for all who will partake in Jesus' death. Praise the Lord. God's perspective on his servant... You killed him, right? I raised him up. I've exalted him. And these guys preaching are witnesses of it. And then, of course, we've got this compassionate invitation to turn from sin and self and trust Jesus only. And finally, last point, receive the promise of refreshment and restoration. I love these verses. Verse 22. Verse 21. Whom heaven must receive. Excuse me. I'll get it right in a moment. Verse 20. The Bible says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke of. Now let me me chase a rabbit, but it's a saved rabbit. Listen. Do you know that the man was restored? Y'all look at me. Which is not only his life being restored salvifically and being saved, but it's emblematic of what God is going to do in the future. So he restores this man, which only Jesus can do, but there's going to be a future restoration of all things. Even our world, even the created order yearns. You you ever read that verse? Right? It yearns for restoration. So that's what that is referring to. I needed to say that before I forget. But what are we saying here about faith in his name? Well, folks... Just think about what happens to your life immediately when you repent and turn to Christ in faith. You get a season of refreshment like you've never had before. Don't you? The burden is just lifted at Calvary. And there's an an awareness like you've never had before. It's not that you won't sin anymore. It's just that you won't sin anymore and like it. Right? You can't like it anymore if you belong to the Lord and, and His Holy Spirit lives in you. And this refreshment comes But do you remember the days shortly after that when the newness wears off? I mean, when you first got saved, you would witness to a signpost, and and then a little later, you just kind of dwindle away, and you get lethargic, and you kind of miss going to church, and you lay out. I had a friend, uh, he's going to come visit me in a few weeks. His name was Scott Bowen. He's my best friend growing up. I had to call that sucker every Saturday night and tell him, you're going to be at church in the morning. And sometimes I had to go to his home and get him on that Sunday morning, get him out of the bed, make him get ready to go to church. I'm glad I did, and he's glad that I did. But you, you, you kind of move away from what it was like the first couple of weeks that you were saved. But I'm telling you, folks, our God is faithful to continually give you seasons of refreshment. And some of you are seated here today, and you need that season of refreshment. You can't remember the last time you felt like my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you need to turn to the Lord. And that barrenness comes so easily. But then he says, I'm going to send the Christ that is appointed to you. Now, you've got to put on your theological caps. And what this means is that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again to restore all things. But is he really saying repent so that Jesus will come back? Yeah, he is. Right? Because... How many of you ever used this tactic, by the way, when you evangelize somebody? You need to repent, trust Jesus, so that Jesus will hurry up and come back. Now get on with the program, dude, right? Just step up with the program. Respond by grace through faith. You're coming whether you want to or not because the sovereign God is calling you. Hurry up and do it so Jesus will come back. Anybody ever done it that way before? I mean, maybe maybe we ought to start doing that. But here's what Peter is saying. Repent and turn to Jesus and make His, a coming, make His coming imminent. What that means is make it near. The eschaton and the end of all things as we know it is just around the horizon. And Jesus said that this gospel, remember this? End of Luke. Y'all know who wrote Acts? Same guy. At the end of Luke, He says, the gospel will be preached to all ethnos, all nations, and then the end will come. So Peter will say in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, something very similar. And here's what he's saying. Repent and turn to the Lord and do your part in bringing the king back. Right? That's really what he, was sa- what he is saying. So there's this tension in these verses between the already and the not yet. We're going to have seasons of When you are restored and made new, folks, old things pass away, behold, all things become new. You need seasons of refreshing, don't you? And one of these days, the king is going to come back and he's going to restore all things. So there's the already and there's the not yet. When Christ came forth from the grave, when he came forth fresh from the trauma of the grave, he began to reverse the entropy in this world. And the seed of restoration for all things was germinated that day when Christ gloriously came forth in the resurrection. And Peter's making an appeal to people and saying, not only can He make you whole, but He's going to make all things whole. As a matter of fact, He's not even going to stop with your soul. He's going to lift your body out of the grave one day, right? And He's going to restore it. And then finally, if that's not enough weight for the sermon... He's going to say to them now, the person you respect more than anybody else ever in the history of the world, his name is Moses, right? Who's the audience? Jewish people. And he's going to turn his attention toward Moses. Do you think Moses carried any weight with the Jewish audience? You better believe it. More weight than anyone. And of course he does. And he's going to say, if Moses says something, you better believe it. As a matter of fact, I would even say to us today, if Moses said something, we better believe it, right? And here's what Moses said. Deuteronomy chapter 18, here's what he he says in Acts, of course. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. Folks, that means cut off from the covenant. Do y'all see the seriousness of this? If you reject Jesus Christ, you reject God. If you reject Jesus Christ and the new covenant in His blood, you absolutely have no way of heaven. You can't have your sins forgiven if you reject Jesus. Now, y'all want to hear what Moses said? Chapter 18, verse 15 of Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall Listen, and Peter's preaching his sermon and he grabs back to Deuteronomy 18 and said Moses talked about Jesus. He doesn't stop there. As a matter of fact, he says the very first one that was given the name of a prophet was who? Samuel. And so from Moses to Samuel and all the prophets, they preached to you the covenant that would be through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They preached this particular fulfillment and Moses foretold it and all the prophets foretold it. All of this is covenant language. As a matter of fact, even the Leviticus, even this one from Leviticus is covenant language. I know I'm running out of time, but listen to this. This is covenant language. Chapter 23, verse 29. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And what was that day? That was the day of atonement. And he says to them, if you don't prepare and consecrate yourself and turn from your sin, you'll be cut off on that day. And now he's preaching Jesus and he says, Moses told you this and all the prophets told you this and if you don't turn and trust Jesus, you will be cut off. That's serious, folks. That's how serious it is for us to track the word, listen to what the scripture says, let the scripture interpret the scripture and just think about this. He says to him, you're a privileged people. Now listen to me, folks. So are you. You're a privileged people to be able to sit in this church this morning and hear the Word of God. Amen. And hear about Jesus Christ. You are so privileged to hear the Word. God didn't have to do this today. He didn't have to call me to open up this book and tell you this. He could have left you silent, not hearing a word. And he says to the Jewish people with all the compassion he probably could possibly muster up. He sent Him to you first. Right? He sent Jesus to you first, and you should have recognized the Lamb of God, the servant that God has exalted, but you didn't recognize Him. But hallelujah, what an invitation. Come to Him now. Right? Repent and turn to Him for refreshment. Just think about this text. Boy, this is an awesome passage of Scripture. I really needed three hours to do this. But the mind can only comprehend what the seek can endure. Right, but listen. You turn, just like in Abraham's covenantal blessings, you're a part of that. Right, when all the people of the world shall be blessed, and you'll be one of those people right now if you repent and turn to Christ. But listen to how rich this is concerning Jesus. He's the exalted servant of Isaiah fifty-two thirteen, right here in Acts. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah fifty-three. He's the Holy One. He's the Righteous One. He's the Author and Prince of Life. He's the subject of all the prophets. He's the prophet like Moses. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the blessing to Abraham, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. He's the seed and the source of forgiveness for all those who would come to Christ. He refreshes people, and He's coming back again. That's a lot in one sermon, isn't it? But that's what the Word is telling us. Now what's required of us? It's very simple. Chapter 3, verse 16. Check it out, folks. And His name. By faith in His name. That's what's required of us today. Just like it was then. It's faith in His name. You will receive new life and your sins will be washed away. And times of refreshment and restoration will come to your life. And without Jesus Christ, I tell you, without reservation, there's no chance of restoration There's no chance of refreshment. There's no chance of your sins being forgiven of you without Jesus Christ. But with Him, He'll wipe all of them away. Just like the text of Scripture says. And I gloriously and happily commend to you the eternal God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the power to make you whole. God, you're so good to us. Father, I thank you for the Word. Lord, just a powerful presentation of the preached Word. Lord, I know I can't do it justice. There's no way possible to bring out and to do justice to what Your Word says. uh, Lord, for me to be able uh, to climb the peaks and heights of all of it. But Lord, You've given it to us. Straightforward. The truth of Your Word. And Father, I pray that just like in that day as Peter preached. And Your Spirit quickened people's minds and hearts to hear the Word. And You enabled them... To respond. And when the command to repent was given, the faith was given as a gift for people to respond and trust you as Lord and Savior. God, would you do that today? Lord, would you work in concert with the heart and minds, the hearts and minds of people today, and may they come to you. God, your truth is inescapable. Lord, I thank you for the truth of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Thank you for his enthronement, and he is, even this day, mighty to save. Lord, may you speak to our hearts during this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.